So happy to be here this morning on this bright, sunshiny day. Uh, I was here a few years ago at the invitation of Dr. Robert Sams and enjoyed it so much. So I was delighted when uh, Jessica invited me for this time and uh, appreciate so much being able to be with you and also to see a few of my former students from Indiana Wesleyan and from the Robert Weber Institute. So it feels good and thank you very much for this invitation. I want to begin with a story. We have a very important feature in our School of Theology and Ministry uh, unit, our suite uh, in the Nagel Building, and it's called the Coffee Bar. And uh, it's a gathering place for faculty, and as we go and come from our classes, uh, we kind of gravitate there and, and say hello and share swap stories of the previous class and uh, drink a cup of coffee together very informally. And a few months ago, one of my colleagues named David, he said, Constance, I, uh, I have a little story to share with you. And so we were sipping our coffee while he told me about a very special worship service that he had experienced just the Sunday before in his Wesleyan church in Marion. And it was, happened to be Christ the King Sunday and the concluding service of the Christian year. Now, at his church, they consistently celebrate all of the seasons and days of the Christian year. They have a pretty exciting, fully-orbed enjoyment and appreciation for all of the story of God. And this Sunday, they did something quite unusual. They dedicated the whole service on Christ the King Sunday to recapping the entire Christian year that was just concluding on that very Sunday. And so the service began with anticipating the incarnation and uh, some songs of Advent. And for one hour, that service moved through the entire grand narrative of God's story, past, present, and future. And the culmination then, of course, was Christ the King, that after the story cycles through, they were celebrating how one day, God will place all things under Christ's feet, mission accomplished, Christ the reigning king, and then the next Sunday would begin with Advent all over again. Now, the story that they presented that Sunday morning was very interactive. It was not presented as a program for the worshipers, but in fact, all of the worshipers were engaged throughout in prayers and singing and testimonies and dramatized scripture readings And so it was a a very much of a communally driven service. Now, people from all ages were involved, grade school children, youth, college, adults. But that was not the most remarkable thing to my colleague, David. He told me of his grandson, whom I will call William. William was seven years old at the time, and he came from a broken home. In fact, his dad was in prison. Now, David, my colleague, spent a lot of time with his little grandson, William. And a couple of months before this service, William had announced to his grandfather, I've decided that I'm not going to believe in anything I can't see. A cynic at the age of seven. Their conversation went like this. Is God here? Yes, God is everywhere. I can't see him. 
Well, usually we feel God. We can't see God quite the same way that we see each other. I've decided that I won't believe in anything unless I can see it. On Christ the King Sunday, William decided to forego children's church and to sit with David and Kay for the service. David noticed that William was reading the worship song words on the slide and he was singing. He was fully engaged throughout the whole service in the prayers and the scripture readings that were enacted before him. From beginning to end, this seven-year-old boy was completely taken with the story of God as it unfolded. After church, William said, when we get home, I need a marker and a clean sheet of paper. And so at home, Kay gave him the paper and the marker, and William disappeared, and David and Kay went on to fix lunch, and pretty soon William came back, and on his paper, he had drawn and written this, I heart God. As the church told the story of God's love in Christ, the transforming story led to transforming worship and to a transformed life of a little boy. And I can remember David and I sharing some tears as well as a cup of coffee that morning. This is the sequence of Luke 24. The disciples heard the transforming the transforming story of the love of God from the lips of the risen one. And the transforming story led to transforming worship, which led to transforming lives. And that's because corporate worship is a means of grace. It is absolutely critical for every ministerial student here or any person involved in ministry to understand the formative nature of worship. And here's why it matters so much. It matters because, first of all, the way that we shape, we will influence the way we shape worship, but more importantly, the way that we shape worship will come back and shape us. Corporate worship changes us. We spend a lot of time discussing and planning how we are going to change worship, (laughs) But have we ever thought so much about how worship changes us? When a particular Christian community devotes itself to intentional, biblical, corporate worship over time, participants will begin to be internally shaped by that experience, and they will live out that experience externally as well. That's because when we worship, whether we realize it or not, we are placing ourselves under the influence of the liturgy. Now, don't be afraid of the word liturgy. I teach uh, students who are taught that that's a naughty word before they come to school. But our English word liturgy is rooted in a Greek term that the New Testament uses frequently. Every church has its liturgy, be not afraid. From Anglicans to Pentecostals to Anabaptists to Wesleyans, liturgy just simply refers to all of the collection 
of the words and actions and symbols and signs that we engage in in, the, in our context to worship God. And so when we choose to worship God in community, we are choosing to place ourselves under the influence of the liturgy of that community. This is a very big deal. If this is true, what liturgy we place ourselves under really matters. When we choose a worship tradition, we are, in fact, choosing a trajectory for our spiritual lives. So consider this question. What transformation would worshipers have a right to expect as a direct result of the way you worship in your church? There's an ancient formula dating back to the 5th century, which is commonly used to portray the formational nature of worship. And it is the Latin phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi. It's translated this, the rule of prayer is the rule of belief. The proposition is simply, what we pray becomes what we believe. The idea is that all of corporate worship is one great big large prayer to God and that the words and actions that we use in worship ultimately shape what we believe. The specific prayers that we pray in worship within this great big prayer to God shapes what we believe. And so do the songs that we sing very much shape what we come to believe. The creeds, the passages of scripture that the community hears, the baptismal and communion liturgies, all of this forms us. In short, the doctrine of the church comes under the influence of worship. What's being suggested is that more belief comes under, through the worshiping experience, through the liturgy, than at the hands of systematic theologians or learned pastors. Now, we can argue whether or not this should be the case, but reality remains. The doxological act of worship deeply shapes us. It is a means of grace. Now, luxurandi lex credendi can go both ways, and it does. Certainly, there are times when what a faith community comes to believe reforms the liturgy, The liturgical changes made as a result of the Protestant Reformation come to mind. So, for example, Martin Luther's new theological insights resulted in changes he made to the Mass. And it happens any time a leader makes intentional adjustments to the liturgy as a direct result of new understanding and insights and commitment. But really, Lex Lex Credendi is best described as a dynamic partnership between the rule of praying and the rule of belief. Yet while one does influence the other, I don't think, and many do not think, that it's equal influence. And so it is likely that worship shapes belief to a greater degree than the other way around. Regardless, the point is simply this. We must never, ever underestimate the power of the liturgy in shaping the spiritual lives of worshipers. It's like a biological family. When you live in a family, we all know you take on 
values, beliefs, language, priorities. How do you do that? You simply do that by participating in the family. And some of our values we learn through the words that the family speaks to one another and repeats to one another. But a great deal of our values are shaped through observing the family's actions. Because after all, actions speak louder than words. So some of what we come to know and to understand from our families is positively forming. For instance, when families serve the poor as an act of mercy. Some of it is deforming. For instance, when parents teach little ones to hate persons of another race. The fact is that much of who we are is caught rather than taught. And it is the same with worship. When we place ourselves under the influence of the liturgy, we find ourselves becoming transformed by that which we hear, speak, think, taste, feel, and imagine. We pray, lexorandi, only to find that we come to believe what we are saying and doing through worship, lex credendi. We worship in faith, and then we find that our faith is shaped by that in which we've participated. When young children and youth together worship, so-called intergenerational worship, this is a beneficial thing, a real beneficial thing from my point of view. Because in the worship itself, we are discipling worshipers, young believers in the faith, forming their Christian understanding as we sing the songs and pray the prayers through which we are all simultaneously formed. So far, I've only mentioned two movements of this Latin dictum. Unfortunately, these are the only two that often appear. But there's a third, which brings the cycle to completion. Lex orandi and lex credendi leads to lex vivendi, a rule of life. In worship, the rule of prayer becomes the rule of belief, becomes the rule of life. This is the brilliance of the historic Wesleyan view. More importantly, it's the core of the Christian view. Twice a year I teach at a school in Florida founded by evangelical scholar and worship renewal specialist Robert Weber. And prior to his death, Dr. Weber routinely visited each of the classes when we were in session. And he would come into class, put his feet on the table, uh, settle back, and share a few salient thoughts, and then he'd do some general Q&A with the students. Those are great, great moments each semester. And I vividly remember one session in which a doctoral student asked Bob what I consider maybe the most profound question I've ever heard raised in the classroom. This student said to Bob, how do you know if you have truly worshipped? Now that's a great question. Without hesitation, Dr. Weber responded, you have truly worshipped when you find that you are increasing in your day-to-day obedience to God. 
He went on to suggest that genuine worship is questionable if one finds that you are not growing in obedience. Obedience is evidence of the way that worship has shaped us. Lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. How we worship reflects what we believe and determines how we will live. Now, the sequence matters. First, we do worship. Doing worship, investing in the costly enterprise of God's expectations for worship, that's our highest calling. Worship is not a discussion about God. It is an experience with God. And God is encountered firsthand in worship. And after that, we reflect on what we did in worship, and then we're able to draw some doctrinal conclusions as a way of explaining the reality that we just experienced. It is worship-seeking understanding. Highly regarded Pentecostal scholar Simon Chan puts it this way. Theology seeks to explain as fully as possible this primary experience of the church in its encounter with God, which is expressed in its public act of worship. Theology's goal is to make explicit what worship knows mostly in an implicit way. Yet theological apprehension is not just for cognitive understanding. No, theology's purpose is to help us be better participants in worship. That's the role of theology, is to produce better worshipers. We seek to understand not to know more, but to be more fully engaged participants in worshipers of the triune God. Truly biblical worship helps the church to become the mission-driven church that God envisions. And therefore, all worship leaders have to constantly critique worship in light of biblical, theological, historical, missiological, cultural, and pastoral understandings for faithfulness in our time. I really like very much how Gordon Lathrop frames this, liturgical scholar. He says, Lex Arandi is participating in the pattern. Lex Credendi is discerning the pattern. Lex Vivendi is living the pattern, the pattern of the liturgy. This is transformational worship. We participate in it, we discern it, and we live it. Now, this is exactly what is depicted in Luke 24. At first, the two disciples of Jesus cannot see the truth with a capital T, who is right in front of them. The one they had left for dead mysteriously appears, speaks, explains, and admonishes. And yet, God kept Jesus' followers from recognizing him. It was at a meal in the house that Lexerandi occurred. As Jesus led them in prayerful acts of worship, Jesus the guest became the host. He took bread, blessed, and broke it and gave it to them. And as his disciples, they had probably seen him do this before because this very same fourfold action shows up in the feeding of the 5,000 and at the Passover meal just a few days before. But it was here on this occasion that their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus' identity. 
<clears throat> they experienced the risen Lord first, Lexerandi. <clears throat> they found themselves participating in the pattern. And then came the reflection upon what had happened in worship. Were not our hearts burning within us? While he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us, they thought about what had occurred and were able to make sense of it, lex credendi. They found themselves discerning the pattern. And last, the disciples immediately left to head back to Jerusalem, where they found other disciples who were dazed in wonderment at what they were hearing. And in turn, these two shared what had happened to them And they witnessed to the resurrection. They told how Jesus was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And the experience of the presence of Christ at the table, how it changed everything. The result of the experience and of their newfound understanding resulted in missional obedience. They went immediately to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others, testifying that he was alive, they were now living the pattern. What I'm proposing is that the ongoing corporate worship of a community offers us an opportunity for intentional spiritual formation. This is not a program. This is not an inspirational moment in the middle of one's week. This is an opportunity for the community to experience the risen Lord every time it gathers, to be changed by the presence of that one through word and table, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Richard Foster considers worship to be a corporate spiritual discipline, as you know, because in his words, corporate worship is an ordered way of acting and living that sets us before God so he can transform us. The point of worship, transformation. So as we need to offer worship to God regularly, sincerely, and intentionally, we create an opportunity for God to meet us and to change us for God's glory. Now, most of the time, we are clueless about this wondrous work that is going on. We, like the disciples, might only recognize it when we look backwards. It was only after the fact that the disciples exclaimed, wait, 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 we see it now. Our hearts were burning. The formational work of God's spirit during worship is often unseen. Uh, But it has been going on. We should not be surprised. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Germination takes a while for the unseen to be seen. So, like the disciples, we've been kept from recognizing recognizing it, or maybe it's just that subtle and that slow. But rest assured, the transformational work of worship has been going on all the while. 
So we have to be patient as we look for ways in which God transforms us through our liturgies, which I think calls into question every time we leave church where we have expected to see or identify anything that happened that was of a critical nature in one 60-minute period. Really. In the end, little William's experience was the same as that of the two disciples. His very words were these, I can't see God. His eyes had been kept from recognizing him. But then he sincerely engaged in worship that embraced the story, the very story that Jesus rehearsed for his disciples as they journeyed from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And through worship, William came to love God. His doxology became his theology in that order. He participated in the pattern. He discerned the pattern. And he lived the pattern. Today, as we celebrate Eucharist, I invite you to participate in it, to discern it, and to live it. And as you do, claim the transformation that it promises you, seen or unseen, and give thanks to God. Let us pray. Holy Spirit of God, whatever work you do, we welcome Recognizable or unrecognizable, slow-growing or immediate, your will, your way, we surrender to completely, and we rejoice and give thanks that you are at work this day, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.